What is the main object, the cornerstone of revival? An increase in church attendance, conversions, or notoriety, money, material blessings? Maybe the main object of revival is not a what, but a who. Today, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid continues our series, Catching Fire, with the sermon titled, The First Stage of Revival. If you're new to City Church, um, or if you're just joining us by podcast, we're glad you've chosen to be a part of us this morning. Just a few years ago, at the 2015 Cannes Film Festival, Woody Allen, the director Woody Allen, was promoting... Uh, his new film at the time, the film was called Irrational Man. And as he was promoting it, the press asked him to expound on his personal philosophy of life. And here's what he said. We're going to put it up on the screen because it's a little wordy, uh, just, but I want you to see what he had to say. He says, no matter how much the philosophers talk to you or the priests or the psychiatrists, the bottom line is life has its own agenda, and it runs right over you while you're prattling. We're all going to wind up in a very bad position someday. The same position, but a bad one. In the end, life has no meaning. We live in a random universe, and you're living a meaningless life, and everything you create in your life or do is going to vanish, and the earth will vanish, and the sun will burn out, and the universe will be gone. All of the great Western philosophers felt that too much reality is too much to bear. And so the way we bear it is you turn a baseball game on or you watch a Fred Astaire movie or you do something that distracts you from this grim truth. That's what I do, he said. I distract myself. Making movies is a wonderful distraction. Filmmaking or even watching films is a nice thing to keep you busy. And then he goes on and he starts talking about his actors in the movie. He says they're worried about their part. If they weren't doing that, they'd be home or sitting on a beach, and they'd be thinking, my God, what is life about? I'm going to be alone. I'm going to die. My loved ones are going to die. Will I get Ebola? (laughs) I obviously don't agree with Woody Allen, but I do think that he gives expression to an idea that haunts many of us, even people who have a relationship with Christ and have for many, many years, and that is that our lives are meaningless. And maybe, maybe not even that all lives are meaningless, just, just my life, right? And I, I have this suspicion that the generations that are represented here in this room this morning are more haunted by that fear than, say, my grandparents were and their generation. And the reason is we've got so many advantages that they didn't. Like we carry all of the knowledge of the world in our pockets or our purses or our smartphones, in in our smartphones every day, right? Like like you can search anything you want to know, and it's right there on the on the internet in less than a second. By the way, the other day I was searching for something. You guys, uh, you guys know how when you go into Google and you type something in, it's it fills it in for you, right? Uh, Are you aware of that? Okay, I was wondering if you guys use Google after, for a minute. So you type something in, and then it fills it in based on the frequency of things that have been filled in before. And so I typed in, I typed in, I'm out of, and then I put, I accidentally typed an E. And you know what came up? Here's what came up. I'm out of estrogen, and I have a gun. That's what, that's what came up. And, and I, I, was, I was wondering, are there that many people that are typing that in? That's frightening to me. 
But we do. We have all the information in the world right at our fingertips. Like we have technological advances that make life so much more efficient and comfortable than ever before. We have every material possession that anyone in my grandparents' generation could have ever wanted or dreamed of. And yet, we're more haunted by the idea that our lives are meaningless than all of the generations before us. Well, we're in a series of sermons. It's called Catching Fire. And the idea that drives this series is that the city of Evansville needs a spiritual awakening, a realization that more and better technology, more money, more fame, more popularity, more sex, more food, more drugs, more alcohol, more sports will never fill the yawning chasm of meaninglessness that exists at the center of their souls. That the only thing that can give life meaning is a personal relationship with one's creator. But no such spiritual awakening will ever happen in the city of Evansville until the church catches fire. So we've started talking as a church about revival. What would it take for revival to happen? Personal revival. Revival as a church. City church revival. And church revival throughout the city of Evansville that might even lead to a spiritual awakening in the city of Evansville and beyond. And in the first week of the series, I just tried to whet our appetites for revival. The second week of the series, last week, we talked about what causes the need for revival. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that actually we're going to be in for the rest of the series. We've kind of bounced around before, but we're going to stay in this passage for the rest of the series. And what this passage is going to show us is that there are general uh, stages. There's a process. There are stages of revival. We can't force revival, but there are things that we can do that make it possible for revival to occur. And we're going to see those stages throughout the rest uh, of this series. How does revival happen? What has to happen for you personally, for us corporately, to experience revival? That's what we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of the series. And if you have a Bible this morning, turn with me in it. Uh, to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. might surprise you that we go there to talk about revival. But the book of Exodus, and I want you to look at chapter 33. Turn to chapter 33, if you would. Exodus chapter 33. It's the second book of the Bible. We're going to look at all of, uh, not all, but we're going to look at quite a few verses in Exodus chapter 33 this morning. But I want to just start with verse 4, because I think verse 4 sort of summarizes everything that I want to say to you this morning. Verse 4, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. Now, I'm going to explain what's happening in this verse in just a moment, but I want you to write this down somewhere, that the first stage of revival is always repentance of sin. So like the first stage of revival is always this sense that there's a conviction of sin among God's people and there's repentance of sin that comes from it, okay? Now, probably as we read that verse, a number of questions came into your mind. Like, who are these people that verse 4 is referring to? And what are those distressing words that caused them to mourn? And what are these ornaments? And why don't they put them on? Well, if you were to turn back one chapter to chapter 32, chapter 32 describes the serious decline in the story of the people of Israel. 
That's the people who verse 4 is referring to, the people of Israel. God had mercifully delivered them from slavery in Egypt through a number of miraculous, powerful acts. And the people rejoiced that they had such a powerful and redemptive God. But just a very short time after seeing those incredible miracles, when they get to a place called Mount Sinai, Moses says to them, he says, listen, I'm going to go up the mountain. I'm going to meet God. Wait here for me. And just a few months after those miracles, the people grew impatient as every day passed, and they began to gripe and grumble, and they turned to Moses' older brother and spokesperson, a guy by the name of Aaron, and they said, make us another God. (laughs) And so Aaron says, well, you know, give me all of your jewelry, uh, all your gold jewelry, and I'll throw it into the fire, and out of that he fashions an idol for them, a golden calf. And the people, <clears throat> the people say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And the people worshiped the idol and they committed vile sins against the Lord in doing this and in the celebration that followed. Well, God judges the people there for their sin of false worship. And by the beginning of chapter 33, God says something fascinating. Watch this, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people that you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. He says, I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land, flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Now, think about what God is offering these people. He's saying, you know, go up into the land. I'm going to send an angel ahead. I'm I'm not going with you. But I'll send an angel up ahead. And you guys go, I'm going to give you guys incredible success. I'm going to give you the land that I promised you. I'm going to give you military success. I'll drive out the Canaanites before you. I'll give you economic success. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you power and prosperity. I'm going to give you prestige. Your life is going to go great. There's only one thing. You won't have me, my presence there with you. You won't have me. But everything else that you've ever wanted will be yours. What would you have said? What would you have done? This offer that he gives these people would be like God coming to a church. Let's think of this corporately as a church for just a minute. It'd be like God coming to this church and saying, you know, do you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to give you fast-growing attendance. I'm going to give you lots of money pouring in. I'm going to give you great numbers. I'm going to give you prestige in the city. Everybody's going to want to come to your church. You won't even know what to do with all the people. There's only one thing. You won't have my presence. Like, I won't be in your services. Oh, the services, they'll be very exciting. It'll be like a football game. It'll be like a great concert, excellent music, great rhetoric, all kinds of wonderful stuff. Everybody will get excited. But my presence won't be there. And you know, here's the thing. 
most churches in America wouldn't know the difference. Everything would go on as normal. And the reason is that people equate a prosperous life or a prosperous church with the presence of God. In other words, here's what they think. If my life is going well, if I'm getting the blessings, if the crops are coming in, if my standard of living is going up, God must be blessing me. I must have the presence of God. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, well, you know, if the church is growing, you must be doing something right. But do you see that this passage teaches just the opposite? Do you see that? This passage teaches that you can have everything going your way and the presence of God not be with you at all. And this is what makes the response of the people of Israel in verse 4 so remarkable. Because the distressing words that caused them to mourn, verse 4 says, you know, they heard these distressing words and they, were, they mourned. The distressing words that caused them to mourn, if I could paraphrase. You don't have to put that slide up just yet. If I could just paraphrase, here's what they said. Here's what they heard. They heard God say to them, essentially, you've just won the lottery of life. Everything that you wanted is now in front of you. Except me. You won't have me because of your sin. And I, and I ask you again, what would you say? What would you do if that was offered to you? And do you, see, do you see what happens with these people? This is what's so fascinating. These people began to mourn. Why? Why were they mourning? Well, because they recognized that the presence of God is more valuable than anything else in life, more than wealth, more than land, more than a home, more than abundant crops, more than... Uh, victories in war, without the presence of God, all of it would have been meaningless. And so above all else, they wanted his presence. And you know something? I want to tell you something. I want his presence. I want to experience the presence of God in my life. I hunger And thirst for that. And I want you to hunger and thirst for the presence of God. Just like these people. I love theology. I love the gospel. But I can't have a personal relationship with theology, with the gospel, with the Bible. I want the personal presence of God in my life. I want his presence to be so powerful in me that you could say to me, Jeff, I'll give you everything that you have ever wanted or could want except God's presence. And I want that to be so powerful in my life that I would say you can keep it all if I don't get God's presence. That's what I want. And I can stand here and tell you from over a quarter of a century of experience doing what I do, that theology and Bible knowledge and communicating truth and working in a church, it's just not enough to get me to turn that offer down. It's not. I want the presence of God in my life. I want to experience his presence. Do you know, do you know who people in church least expect to meet when they come to church? <laughs> I think it's God. 
How many of you, when you came here this morning, thought, I'm going to meet God at City Church this morning? I suspect not many of you. But what if that weren't the case? What if your life was so full of the presence of God? And what if every time you came to church, you you just had this anticipation that I'm going to encounter, I'm going to meet God, I'm going to see God, I'm going to experience the presence of God today. What would that be like? And you're probably wondering, well, what, you know, what does this mean you know, to experience the presence of God? Some of you are saying, well, you know, I'm saved. I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Uh, you're saying I don't have the presence of God in my life? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying, well, let me, let me say it this way. Some people think that to experience the presence of God means that all sorts of like miraculous healings are going to occur in a place or that people are going to begin to speak in tongues of angels or I don't know if you guys know this, but about a decade and a half ago, there was this movement that taught that if revival comes to a place, people will break out in holy laughter. That's not revival. That's not what it means to experience the presence of God in a fresh, new way. Some people will say, well, you know, we know uh, that the presence of God, um, we know what it feels like because it, everything in the church or everything in the service or, or um, like at the concert, at, at the Christian concert, whatever it is, uh, we'll know when that comes because everyone will be sw- singing together in perfect harmony and they'll be swinging together and it'll be loud and it, it, that's, that's not the presence of God. I mean, I, I, listen, I felt that at Willie Nelson concerts, and trust me, it wasn't the presence of God that I was feeling, I promise you. <laughs> to experience the presence of God means that the Holy Spirit moves something about God's character from conceptual to personal in a way that you've never experienced it before, in a way that it becomes so real to you that it becomes part of the very fiber of your being. So for instance, maybe it's the power of God. And all of a sudden, you experience this in a way that it stops being just a theological concept. And it becomes very personal to you. So that that the mountains in your life at that very moment that you're facing no longer terrify you. They no longer worry you. They no longer create anxiety in you. They're just gone because of experiencing the presence of God. And there's this profound, unexplainable peace that comes on you. Now, be careful. I'm not talking about this. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you have peace that everything's going to go the way you want it to. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about peace in the sense that you're going to do whatever you want to do and then God is going to make it turn out the way you want it to. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is that there's this profound peace that comes on you that whatever happens, even if it seems terrible, you still have this profound peace that you can't explain. It's just that the presence of God came on you in a new and fresh way. And that you understood the power of God in a way you'd never gotten it before. It moved from concept to, to heart. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the power of God. Maybe it's a sense of God's goodness. 
And suddenly again, it comes on you and it's no longer a concept that you know in your head, but it becomes personal. And so much so that you might be in the most painful of circumstances and yet you're joyful. You know, I'm not, not gleeful, not gleeful, but joyful because you feel that you own, it's a part of your being that God is good and that you don't have any questions about that. It's like you own that. It is there. It's a fact. God is good and you, you feel that. Wouldn't you like to experience that? Like if you, if you experience that, like there would never be any question about whether your life has meaning or not. Wouldn't you like to experience that? Can you see how, if you could experience that, if, that, if that's what, if you got that, can you see how that would be more valuable than all of the silver and gold in the world? And can you see that whatever you've been doing in your life, whatever you've been doing in your spiritual life up until now, you've been settling for ashes. And that we have been settling for ashes collectively. And when I say we, I mean the collective church in Evansville. That we've been settling for ashes. And can you see that if we could just experience that, how it might spill out onto the streets of Evansville and change this city? Can you see that? I hope that, I hope that in this moment that you find yourself thinking, yes, I want that. I hunger and thirst for that. And I hope that it it wells up in you and it makes you hunger and thirst for revival, for a a new, fresh sense of, of, of the presence of God in your life. I want you to look back at verse four with me for just a moment. When the people heard these distressing words that God wasn't going to be with them, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. And if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. The first stage of revival is always this sense of conviction and then repentance of sin. That's the first stage of revival. It's always repentance. That's what's, that's what's happening here in these verses. But what I want to do, I know, you know, when I use the word repentance, I want, to, I want to make that a little more clear to you. And I want to give you three words from this passage that describe what repentance is, what it looks like. What does repentance look like? You see it from these verses, from these people. The first thing that it looks like is mourning. Mourning. These people mourn when they heard those distressing words that God, that their sin had separated them from the presence of God. The idea that they had so offended God that he wouldn't go into the land with them caused them to mourn. And when revival comes, there is this recognition of the seriousness of your sin against God. Do you want revival? 
The first stage of revival is always repentance, and repentance starts with mourning. Now, understand something about mourning. Mourning isn't just sorrow over doing something wrong or something bad. And it's not just awareness that you have sinned. It's more than that. There's a difference. You know, there's a difference between worldly mourning or sorrow and godly mourning or sorrow. And you listen to this. The Apostle Paul is contrasting these. And he says, he says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, what is he saying? What he's saying is that there's a kind of repentance that is worldly in that it's only about you. It's like, it's only, it's only, it's like, it's like, I can't believe that I did that. I can't believe I'm the kind of person who would do that. It's the kind of sorrow, see, that focuses all on you and all that your sin has cost you and all that you have lost. And it tends to result only in shame and guilt that you end up carrying around all of the time and that you can't get rid of this enormous regret. That's what Paul means when he says that it, it leads to death. Death isn't, when the Bible talks about death, it's not talking about just physical death. It's talking about emotional death, physical death psychological death, relational death. It could be all of those things. So that worldly sort of sorrow, that worldly repentance, it tends to lead to death. But godly sorrow is different. It's Christ-focused. Godly sorrow realizes the seriousness of your sin against God, the offense that it is to him in light of all that he is and all that he has done for you in Christ. It's the realization that this sin cost Jesus his life. It's the realization that whatever you did was essentially valuing something else more than the supreme being of the universe. And that kind of sorrow leads to not death, but to salvation. Now, again, salvation doesn't always mean, it's not always, it's not like it, it only means that you're going to heaven when you die. That's, that's, not, that's not what it only means. Salvation means more than that. For some, it means that. For some, it, it means, you know, if they've never trusted in Jesus before, that kind of sorrow can lead them to trust in him. And then they, you know, they experience salvation in the sense that they have an, you know, they're saved from an eternal destiny without God. But for those of us who are already redeemed, salvation also means being saved from a life that is only me-centered and temporal. And as a result, plagued by this sense of meaninglessness and futility. That kind of repentance leads to salvation from that. So repentance begins with this mourning over sin that recognizes that it's separated you from the presence of God. You've turned from him in some way. You've trusted something else, and that brings mourning. The second word that describes what repentance looks like is longing. It's it's longing. Revival always starts with repentance. Repentance looks like mourning and longing. Now, what do I mean by longing? Longing for what? Well, longing for the presence of God. These people are distressed because God has told them he won't be with them. He's not going to go with them. 
But they wanted, they longed for the presence of God with them, so much so that they would have rejected their rightful inheritance, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the blessings that came with it if it meant being without God. Repentance includes this longing for the God that you have rejected, that you have turned from, that you've chosen not to trust in for something or for someone else. It becomes a hunger and a thirst for him, something deeper than you've ever experienced before. That's what repentance looks like when revival happens. And then the third word, that describes what repentance looks like, is is this word, uh, I'm going to use the word forsaking, forsaking. Verse 6 says that the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now, what does that that mean? Well, the the word that's translated ornament is the the Hebrew word for jewelry. And you'll remember, I I told you about this, that back in chapter 32, when the people demanded that Aaron make them a, a, a golden calf, what did he make the golden calf out of? He made it out of their jewelry, out of their gold jewelry, Right? And so when they stripped themselves of their ornaments, of their jewelry, it was a tangible way of showing that they were forsaking their sin. It was a way of saying, we hate what we did. Like, we don't want it anymore. We don't, we don't want any part of it anymore. We'll give up whatever we have to give up to get the presence of God. Now, I, I, I don't mean to imply, and I hope you, hope you don't, Take this away. That I'm not trying to imply that, that genuine repentance means that you never commit the sin again. That views sin too simply. Israel struggled with idolatry all through their history. Sin is always a product of worshiping, of clinging to something, an idol instead of God. And if you've been clinging to an idol for many, many years, listen, I promise you, it'll take a long time to rid yourself of the lingering effects of that idol on your life. Forsaking your sin means that you so hate, though, what is taking you away from God that you're willing to do whatever it takes to begin the process of digging this thing out of your life, of uprooting this idol and destroying this idol in your life. You'll do do whatever it takes. You'll sacrifice whatever it takes. You'll strip yourself of whatever you need to strip yourself of. So... This is the point now where things turn on you. (laughs) How much do you want to experience the presence of God? How much do you hate the sin that's keeping you away from the presence of God? What would you be willing to do to root sin out of your life? What would you be willing to strip from your life in order to do that? and to experience God's presence. For instance, those of you ladies who are sleeping with your boyfriend, would you give him up to experience the presence of God? It says nothing compared to what people, the people of Israel were giving up. Are you struggling with an addiction to pornography? Some of you men. Would you sacrifice your pride? And would you admit to someone else, some other guy, that you struggle with this so that you can begin to 
root it out of your life? Would you let some other guy see and monitor, for instance, your internet use to root this evil out of your life? Would you do that? See, when you, when you forsake your sin, you're willing to give up anything you have to give up to get sin out of your life. Not because you'll lose your salvation. Not to earn God's love. But because you want more. You want him to be so real in your life. You want to have such an experience of the presence of God in your life that the world will know that you are, that we are his people. The first stage of revival is repentance. It comes with a conviction that leads to repentance. Now, I want to I say one more thing. You saw a couple of times in this passage where God said to them, he said, you know, look, I'm not going to go with you. You go. I'm not going because if I go, I may destroy you. Why don't we have to worry about that today? The reason is that God destroyed his son, Jesus Christ. For our sins. Jesus experienced the punishment that we should have experienced so that we could live the life that he should have continued to live. And so when we repent, we don't repent like, oh, woe is me, I'm such a worm. We repent with a sense of joy. We keep our eyes focused on Christ. And we say, Lord Jesus Christ, I did, I know I'm guilty. I got this idol in my life. I want it out. It's keeping me from you. I want more of you. So Lord, dig this thing up. I repent. Dig this thing up. I'll get rid of anything I got to get rid of to get more of you. Bring it on. I want more. And we give thanks for what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what repentance looks like. And so I want to challenge you today as we talk about revival, as you long for personal revival, would you ask God today, would you just ask God to reveal to you your sin, your idol, and to bring a true sense of repentance to you, that he would convict you and bring a true sense of repentance to your life. Would you do that today? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are, you know, we, we want revival. We want more. We don't, we don't want to live with this sense of mediocrity and sort of been there, done that with Christianity. We want more. We want something more personally, corporately. We want it to spill out onto the streets. We want every church in Evansville to experience that. And so, Lord, we're praying for that, that you would bring upon your people a conviction of sin that leads to repentance, real repentance. And that as, as a result of that, that we would be preparing ourselves to experience more of you more of your presence in our lives. Lord, would you do that today? And would you keep us focused on Christ as we do, that our repentance would be a godly repentance? That leads to salvation and doesn't include regret. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and that we pray today. Amen. The presence of God, the very 
person of God is the main object and cornerstone of revival. But God, who is holy and perfect, righteous and blameless, can't dwell intimately with people who are not. Still, Jesus, God personified, comes to earth bringing good news of the kingdom of God with the command to repent and believe the good news. Repentance is the first stage of revival. If you're in the area, join us next Sunday at 9.15 or 11 for part four of Catching Fire. We're at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.